Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking the Game podcast. I'm Stephen Gillespie, and joining me, as he has been for the most part lately, is uh, Austin Carr. Austin, I know that you had. Uh, I, I shared with our listeners and viewers um, our, on our last episode that you had an emergency come up. I didn't divulge names or what happened or anything, but uh, you know, just kind of explained that you weren't going to be able to be with us. But um, you know, glad to have you back, man, and uh, you know, just continue to pray for you and your family, brother. Hey, I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm glad to be back. You know, I'm excited to be back on the show. I definitely missed doing it with you over the weekend. Um, yeah, we did have a little bit of emergency, but uh, things worked out about as good as can be expected. So, that's good, man. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that everything's going well. But um, you know, a lot of stuff has happened since you know, especially since our last. You know, talking about right. the week of NBA playoff and news happened. Before we get to the playoffs, though, uh, another award that, you know, I, I feel like uh, you probably saw coming a little bit more clearer than I did. I'm still a little upset about it. So with that being said, I'll go ahead and let you open us up on our um, NBA news as far as the awards that have been given. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Brandon Ingram won most improved player. Um, I don't know if it's something necessarily that I uh, saw coming more than you. I just I feel like. Uh, the, league the league likes, likes um, perimeter players more than big men anymore, and I just kind of felt like that was the, the, what what gave him the edge. Not that it wasn't deserved, though. You know, he improved his role. He improved his minutes. Um, he well, he played about the same minutes, but he improved his scoring by five or he's, he had the same minutes. He had about five or six more points per game. His shooting was tremendously better. Um, you know, he was the number one option on a team that everybody thought was going to try to push for the playoffs there, and. Um, you know, Bam, I think who you picked, and he was definitely deserving as well. Uh, I think he, like, doubled his scoring, doubled his assist output for the season from last year. Um, but, you know, I don't think they could have gone wrong either way. Yeah, I just I felt like, well, for one, you know that my guy Devontae Graham wasn't anywhere on the ballot, and that made me greatly upset. And then not only that, I felt like out of the two guys, I felt like, you know, uh, Bam Adebayo – not only did he improve his minutes, right, but he improved his role. He went from being a, um, you know, just a rotational big man behind, you know, Hassan Whiteside, and then he steps into this role, and then he's, you know, second. You know, you could probably twist or construe an argument that he may be the most important player on the Heat. You know, I wouldn't agree with that, but I'm just saying that there are some that do. Uh, I just felt like, you know, the the points, the rebounds, the defense, you know, averaging a double-double with five assists, you know, not a lot of – big men do that you know what i mean so like he's doing stuff that hasn't been done a lot in nba history whereas we see these wings who are high draft picks you know put up big numbers all the time you know what i mean so like i just felt like this may be the nba's way of trying to make up for that investment that they did with the new orleans pelicans where you know zion got hurt and you know they they invested heavily on the television programming and then you know created the the playing tournament specifically for this team it felt like and yeah, I just felt like, you know, they had to get some sort of return off of the investment that they put on the team. And not that I don't think that, you know, Brandon Ingram is a bad player. I just felt like, you know, he wasn't as deserving, you know, because not only did Bam's numbers go up along with Ingram's, but also those minutes per game, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. he, to me, he was, when I look at this, I'm thinking literally the most improved. I know that there is a, a thought out there that if you improve from, you know, you know, kind of, rookie to star status that's probably one of the more difficult jumps is that kind of where you fall in line with on this yeah i, I kind of agree with that and um i also 
feel like too. Um, Ingram was definitely the number one option on that team most of the year. And, you know, we saw he, he didn't struggle with the Lakers. You know, he was an 18-point-a-game scorer the year before. So I think people probably saw this coming. But just like like you said, the fact that he was in um, prime time so much, they were on TV a lot. You know, the NBA did invest a lot into the Pelicans for, you know, not a whole lot of return. Um, so I kind of I kind of see what you're saying there. Um the argument for Bam, though, too, you know, you could say he's kind of made a star leap as well. Um, you know, he's definitely going to be an all-star, you know, multiple times in his career, I think. I think we can both agree with that. Um, you know, Ingram, just uh, like I just think the fact that he was the leading guy on his team is probably what gave him the edge. I did read that it was really close. Bam had over 30 first-place votes, so it's it wasn't uh, – it wasn't uh, very far off in between the two guys, that's for sure. Yeah, and like I said, I'm not super upset, but part of me does feel like Bam got extremely robbed. But, I mean, it's most improved player. It's not like, you know, MVP, and hopefully we don't have that much controversy. I think you and mm-hmm. I kind of fall along the same thought process as to who we think's on there, right? But, um, right. You know, it, it is interesting to see these most improved player um, you know, awards and stuff like come out because, you know, it means a lot for the history of not only the game, but for the players involved as well. So, yeah. Right. And it, it, it does kind of feel like in past years, the guy who's been the most improved player has made a little bit bigger leap maybe than Grant, uh, than Brandon Ingram did this year. Um, it seems like a lot of years it takes a guy that's not necessarily an unknown, but definitely not someone that people I think, I think is going to be, be a star, star. And, and I think, I think a lot of people already knew Brandon, Brandon Ingram was going to be what he was what he was this year. So I don't know if it was as surprising of a leap that he made as maybe Bam was, or you know, Devontae Bam especially, like you said. I don't think anybody saw him coming like that. Um, and there is something to be said too about taking on a bigger role, which both of those guys did. Whereas I, I guess Ingram did. I mean, how can you not take on a bigger role when you're not? playing behind LeBron or with LeBron, but, uh, you know, he didn't, like you said, he didn't play really any more minutes. You know, he had the ball in his hands just about as much last year. He ran the offense quite a bit for the Lakers last year as well. So, you know, um, it could have gone either way. Yeah. And and you're hundred percent right. And like I said, it's, it's not so much the fact that Ingram got it. I think is why I'm mad. It's just that I'm mad that Graham was nowhere to be seen on this list. Right. Well, he was, yeah, deserving, he was deserving. That's for that's sure. I, I certainly, I've certainly felt that way. I didn't, I didn't make that that point um, very, ambu- you know, ambiguous at all there. But um, right, you know, we can we can move on from this award that I just don't agree with, and we can get to some of the things that I think that we can agree with, and that is, you know, our predictions for how we felt the playoffs would go, and yeah. for the most part, I think that all of my predictions so far have come true. Um, mm-hmm. And right now we have OKC um, against Houston right now. I did say that if we're, if Westbrook played that I felt like Houston would advance, and I know that they kind of have a small lead um, in mm-hmm. the first quarter right now. But, you know, we'll see how that goes. Maybe we can update the, the viewers and listeners here in a little while as we go. Yeah, but the first sure. series that, uh, that I want to discuss with you is the, the L.A. Clippers against the, the Dallas Mavericks. Now, from our last episode that I recorded, and I had um, Couch Coach of the Couch Coach Live podcast um, fill in for you, so to speak, for lack of a better term. 
and uh, you know it was great. It was great getting to talk with him, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, miss miss working with you, man. I, I greatly appreciate what you've done. Oh, and you know, we didn't get to we didn't get a chance to celebrate, but we cracked the 400 downloads for the month hey, of August. That's that's pretty that's awesome. Pretty that's awesome. A, a big a big month. Big that's month. much appreciated, appreciated to everybody that you know watches or listens. listens. So that's really cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. And, th- and thank you, Austin, because you've you've put mm-hmm. in a lot of great work, man. And uh, you know, it's Good, been, I appreciate it's been it. Been a blessing to have you on the show. Absolutely. But we can stop being nice to each other and talk about these Clippers and Mavericks. Start arguing about some stuff, right? Yes, absolutely. So the the Clippers (laughs) advance four to two. Um, I don't know. I think I might have said five or six games. I can't remember exactly. I'm not gonna. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not gonna gloat too much. But I think that we both did end up going with the Clippers, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably not in the in the fashion that we would have anticipated. You know, Kristaps Porzingis. We can start from there. Another leg injury to the seven foot three big man. Yeah, yeah, leg injuries, leg injuries on big guys like that scare, like me, that a scare me a lot. Um, um, you know, they, you know, they, they have a hard, they have hard time overcoming that kind of stuff. stuff. I mean, look at DeMarcus Cousins. Cousins. You know, every time he looks like he's going to come back, he gets hurt. Greg Odin's, Greg Odin's career was completely was ended because of it. Because of it. You, know, you know, it's all throughout the history of the NBA. There's been, you know, multiple examples of that kind of thing. So it does worry you, especially with his frame. You know, he is a fairly strong guy, but for his height, he's still, you know, he looks like a twig out there compared to some of those guys. And, you know, that might help him, though, that he's not real big and heavy for his size. That might help him, you know, recover a little bit better. Um, But... I don't know if the Mavs have this duo that we were so sure that they were going to have for a long time if if he's as injury prone as it seems. That's one thing I would worry about going forward if I was Dallas is, you know, how long are you going to, how many opportunities are you going to give him before you decide that, hey, maybe this guy's just too fragile. Yeah, and and I think a lot of that would have to do with the, the free agency and, you know, not to change the subject, but, you know, that they're a big contender in the uh, 2021 sweepstakes potentially to try to land Giannis Antetokounmpo to land right, the international right. big three. I think that would be something to behold in of itself mm-hmm. and wouldn't be a lot asked of KP other than just, you know, block shots and shoot threes with mm-hmm. uh, the rest of that roster, right? But, um, you know, going back to the series, you know, the Clippers did advance four to two. And then in game six, you know, Luca continued to to be Luca. You know, it it's been nice to see him go against this uh, very much so a Doc Rivers style of team where mm-hmm. you know his uh, his mental toughness is going to be tested as well as his physical you know toughness. And Luca responded in kind. You know, even though it was a kind of a, a disappointing loss, it was 111 to 97, and that mm-hmm. was way back on the 30th. I know that there's been a whole mess of games been played between now and then but right. from the last time that we've recorded this game occurred and Luca finished with 38-9-9 on 53% shooting from the field, 44% from deep and only 50% from the free throw line. I believe that was on one of two or two or four attempts it wasn't very many mm-hmm. attempts at all and, you know, our, our guy Kawhi Leonard had another great game, 33-14-7 shot 60% from the field, 25% from deep 100% from the line Paul George is continuing to be kind of hit and miss. You know, had had 15 points, only shot 31% from the field, 28% from deep, 50% from the free throw line. And Luka didn't get much help in this game at all. Finney Smith was the second leading scorer with 16, and Tim Hardaway Jr. was third in, with, with 10 points. They're awesome. What, what did you think of the way that this series ended? Well, it was just, it, just- it kind of ended how I expected. Um, 
I just the Mavs were just overpowered in the end. The Clippers are are you know one of the legitimate championship contenders right now, and obviously the Mavericks are looking more like a team of the future. Um, they need to get some more help around him for sure. They need to get some guys that can defend a little bit. Um, you know, having two guys, three guys in double figures is not usually probably going to get done for you. Um, one thing I didn't like to see. Now I'm I'm a big fan of clean hard fouls there's nothing wrong with you know like Shaq said touch touch him up a little bit but what happened in the end of that game was definitely a little more than that and what happened too when uh when Marcus Morris stepped on Doncic's foot you can say what you want whether it was intentional or not to me it looked like he was looking right down at it i i don't want to speak for someone else's mindset but that just seemed a little suspect and then you know in game six he hit him right in the face like that like you can you can give a guy a hard foul and not go after their head and i just i didn't like that too much um i think there's a big difference between being a tough player and being a dirty player and you know far be it for me to call him dirty he hasn't really had a huge reputation of that but marcus morris just he looked that was just a little over the top for me, I think. Yeah, I mean, the Morris brothers, by definition, I, I mean, as, as far as today, NBA, as far as today's NBA goes, excuse me, there, um, they're probably some of the more dirty players in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not our, it's not the NBA that we grew up with where you, you right. saw Robert Horry hit check Steve Nash or you know, clotheslines in midair from our test and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. They're probably as dirty as it gets in the NBA today. You know, the Morse brothers are. And yeah. Marcus was, I mean, you could say, oh, that one particular play, I didn't mean to do that. But mm -hmm. where were you at on the rest of those plays? You know what I mean? Like Right. Was, right. Once, it once it happens more than once. You're, you, you put yourself under a microscope, right? I mean, ask Draymond Green. It cost probably mm -hmm. the Warriors an NBA championship one season, right? So... Definitely. Definitely. It's hard to kind of be like, oh, yeah, that one out of the five dirty plays that you did, we'll, we'll sweep that one <laughs> under the rug. You know? Right. Right. Yeah, but you look at just just the rest of the statistics involved with this game, right? Like the Mavs actually out-rebounded the Clippers by 13. And, uh, you know, the Clippers outside of George and Kawhi had a couple other guys in double figures, right? Zubac actually had 15. That was a very impressive game. They played him a lot more in this game than they typically did, and it did give Doncic a little bit of trouble for some stints, right? And then Reggie Jackson with 14. The, the Clippers overall, though, were 6% better from the floor on only one more attempt. You know, they were 8% better from deep on eight fewer attempts. They were 12 of 13 from the free throw line, which is 92%. Just quick math there, according to my calculations. Shout out Shaquille O'Neal. And the Mavericks were 10 of 17, only 58%. The Clippers were plus 10 in rebounds. They were plus 2 in assists and plus 10 in points in the paint. And then the Mavericks had one less turnover and six less fouls. So when you look at these stats, you can say, yeah, the Mavs did all right because they didn't turn the ball over as much. They didn't foul as much. But that toughness that the, the Clippers did display, it carried over into areas like rebounds, right, and points in the paint. And mm -hmm. ultimately, that's where... The game was one of me, awesome. Yeah, and it is a little cliche, but you know, in the playoffs, it's cliche for a reason. You know, rebounding, not turning the ball over, which the Mavericks did turn the ball over much, but missing free throws. You know, missing seven out of seventeen free throws is a lot. Yes. You know, a few of those here and there can really turn momentum. You know, you're within four instead of six, or you're within you know seven instead of ten. You know, and 
all of a sudden that lead is a little bit less and it's a little bit easier to overcome. And, you know, those kind of mental things do make a difference. And it's just disheartening when you get free throws and you just miss them. Um, you know, Giannis missed a couple in that in the game we I just finished watching too, and, and he was definitely kicking himself after the game. Um, but not to get off topic, but, you know, it just seems like it's kind of been a uh, running theme these playoffs. Um, a lot of teams are losing games on, you know, real close games on just little plays here and there, you know, giving up a timely offensive rebound or a bad foul or, you know, missing free throws at the end of the game. And, you know, being beaten by 10 on the boards isn't something to, you know, sweep under the rug either. That's a big difference. No, you're 100% right. Yeah, and notably, too, for the Clippers, they continue to miss uh, Patrick Beverly in these games. Ultimately, though, the, my biggest takeaway from this series is, you know, I, I picked the Clippers to win it all this year. So mm-hmm. I am obviously happy to see them advance because, you know, they're just showing what I saw on them prior to these playoffs kicking up. I just hate it for Kawhi Leonard, and here's why. All these dirty plays that are happening against this likable, lovable Luka Doncic, who's averaging triple-doubles, he's smiling, Mm -hmm. and now he's standing up for himself a little bit more against these dirty, rough hooligan Los Angeles Clippers players. You know, people are like, yeah, Luka, way to not put up with it. You know what I mean? Right, right. Poor Kawhi Leonard is just minding his own business. You know, he's not getting in anyone's face. He's just out there being a Terminator, you know, putting up 30 and 10 and – a couple assists and every game, every game, quietly and they don't just talk being, about yeah, quietly just being one of, if not the best, best performer in these playoffs, mm-hmm. and it's all getting kind of diluted a little bit because you have your guys like, you know, Marcus Morris and your Patrick Beverly's kind of taking away a little bit of that momentum and Montrez Harrell taking um, you know, the attention off of the good that the Clippers are doing mm-hmm. and focusing in on as reasons why you shouldn't want the Clippers to succeed and why if Kawhi wins, it's because he plays on a dirty team now. And I hate that for him. Right. I saw uh, something on social media that said the Los Angeles Clippers have officially taken over for the Golden State Warriors. It's the most hated team in basketball. And I mean, it's kind of true. Like there's, there never have been a a huge fan base of Clippers fans. Like there's just not a whole lot of diehard Clippers fans, partly because they share LA with the Lakers, partly because they've really never been that good. But, you know, Kawhi has a pretty heavy, big fan base. Paul George has his, you know, his his fan base. And, um, you know, I think this is definitely the most popular Clippers team there's ever been. And to take away from that is definitely, you know, a bad thing. Um, but that being said, I think that kind of gives the Clippers part of their identity. They, they do have a little bit of an edge. They've got three or four guys on that team that you would say are, you know, scrappy, hard-nosed type of players, maybe a little bit dirty, which, you know, isn't a good thing. But having an edge isn't necessarily a bad thing. And you kind of need that physicality in the playoffs. You know, teams like the Miami Heat are going to be really physical with you. The Lakers are going to be big and physical for the lead that, that edge a little bit, I think. So I think it actually helped them kind of have an identity. It's called, Kawhi Leonard is a great player. and He's a superstar, believe me. But he's he's not really like a vocal leader at all. And so I don't think we get to see right. Like right, at least at least at least from the outside looking in. Um, so I don't know that he really instills his personality on his team as much as some other superstars do. You know, like LeBron's teams are LeBron's teams. You know, the Houston Rockets built their entire organization around James Harden. 
And the Clippers made a lot of moves to bring Kawhi Leonard in, but he even when he was with Toronto, I mean, it was his team, but they had it was everyone called it, you know, it was a great team effort. And and when he's with the Clippers now, it just it seems like maybe because he's not so vocal, he doesn't always get as much credit as he deserves as a lot of those other guys do. And you know, if that's how he wants it to be, then more power to him. Yeah, I mean, you're just to me. It's it's just tough because, right? You like when if you're a team, if you're an analyst, right? And you and you say like, this is a team that I want to win. It's like you kind of have to ride with those kind of blemishes or you know mm-hmm. negative comments and stuff like that. Like you have to say, yeah, Marcus Morris, you know, clocking <laughs> Luka Doncic is a good thing for the Clippers. You kind of have to like justify them, you know. And mm-hmm. it, it feels very much like a Doc Rivers teams. It almost harkens mm-hmm. back to those Boston Celtics championship eras, right? Oh Where yeah. KG made some kind of questionable, you know, moves on the court. Rajon Rondo did some questionable things on the court. You know, Paul Pierce. And to me, Kawhi is almost like Ray Allen in a way. Like, Ray Allen didn't get in, in, in much arguments or conversations at mm-hmm. all. He was just I surrounded by it. these very emotional guys, and he just went out there and, you know, just put you away quietly. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? He let other people do the talking for him. And that's kind of like what I see Kawhi Leonard's role being, as far as, like, emotionally on this team. Obviously, he's their mm-hmm. best player, you know. Right, for sure. I, I, I like that analogy for sure and definitely makes sense. You know, uh, Doc Rivers does kind of always have those, you know, blue-collar style teams. They're, they're not going to let you have any easy buckets. He's still kind of a little bit of an old-school style of coach in that way. Um, but looking forward, um, they play the next, you know, the next series we're going to talk about is the Denver-Utah game. But they're, they're obviously going to play Denver in the next round. Um, I'm not – too sure how much trouble Denver's going to give them. I don't think they can slow them down defensively at all. And, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this here in a sec, but obviously Jamal Murray's been out of this world. But, you know, how many good defenders do the Clippers have that they can put on him, that they can throw, throw at him? So, you know, that's going to be an interesting um, matchup to see if he can continue um, lighten it up the way he has. Yeah, you're 100% right. And the two games that have happened since our since we last talked the playoffs were on the 30th, there was an outstanding 119 to 107 point outburst. Um, you know, both Murray and Mitchell had, well, Murray had 50 points. Mitchell only had 44. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murray finished with 56 and 5, shot 70% from the field, 75% from deep on 9 of 12 shooting, only 77% from the free throw line. Um, it, it was just crazy to me. And then Jokic kind of partnered alongside him with 22 on 40%, 46% shooting from the field, 3-5 from deep. Grant had 18 on 4 of 7 shooting from deep. Um, Mitchell's had 40, 44, 6, and 5 on 56% shooting from the field. Only, only shot 69% from 3 mm-hmm. on 9 of 13 shooting, 100% from the line. Conley Jr. was their next best player. He had 21, 6, and 5, 53% from the field. 66% from deep and 75% from the free throw line. What did you, at that first game, you know, and, and au contraire, the final game was a completely different type of, right. <laughs> different outing. Well, I think you have to put game six. The loss obviously has to be clearly on Donovan Mitchell missing those four threes. You know, he makes those four threes, which he should have obviously done. It would have been a tie game. Right. Like, why couldn't you be 13 to 13? Exactly. You know, I mean, how are you going to miss? 
this is not the time for that. No, obviously those two guys, it's been an incredible back and forth matchup. Um, I saw something, something on, I think ESPN, somebody was saying that uh, they should just play one-on-one for game seven. And, you know, I think everybody, just as many people probably would have tuned in to watch that and watch the actual game. Um, just, you know, it's kind of hard to determine. Is it... Bad defense, bad defense, or is it that good of offense? offense. Oh, I mean, bad defense. it's definitely yeah, bad defense. Bad defense. Uh, but there, but you, there you can only, only, you know, you still have you to make the shots. Shot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> you know, there's you know, just there's some just crazy, crazy stats, stats from the three-game three uh, stretch that uh, Jamal Murray had. I marked a few of these things down in my notes. Uh, he scored 142 points in three games. That's the third most ever in a three-game playoff span, uh, trailing only Michael Jordan in 1988 and Jerry West in 1965. Uh, he's the second player. Right, exactly. He's the second player in 20 years with three 25-point halves in a playoff series. The only other player to do that is Allen Iverson in the 2001 Eastern Conference Finals. Um, he scored 50, um, 50 points, points in game, game six, six on 24 field goal attempts, attempts, which is the fewest attempts in a 50-point game since Bob Cousy in 1953. And he hit 30, he hit 30 free throws in that game. And uh, he's the first player since Jordan in 1993 to score 40-plus in three straight playoff games. So, you know, nothing new here, just a run-of-the-mill kind of week for Jamal Murray. No, obviously he's doing things that we haven't really seen in a very, very long time. Um, but uh, he won me quite a bit of fan duel money with that comeback. I actually uh, bet a little bit on, on them to come back and win the series when they were down 3-1. to one. So I was pretty happy about that. I hope, I hope that you got a nice little bit of money there, bro. Yeah, nothing too crazy. I, I, don't, I try not to spend too much money on it, but it was nice to – Nice to get nice that win, that's for sure. Um, then the, the game, game seven, obviously, uh, was a completely different story. It was 80 to 78. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Yeah, it was just a rock fight. And all these guys, you know, they had to have been dog tired. You look at their misses, most of them were short. You know, that their shots were flat. It was – and it took, it took, what, I think a 13-point third quarter for – Donovan Mitchell to get the Jazz back into this because at one point they were down double digits almost going into the fourth quarter Mm -hmm. and it felt like the Nuggets were just going to run away with it but Donovan Mitchell was like all right as tired as I am I got to put the team on my back and go to work and it was it was just a a phenomenal effort um all the way around now it wasn't pretty like I said he was 40 percent from the field on 9 of 22 shooting 25 percent from deep on 2 of 8 and 100 percent from the line again and but this was Jokic's night to shine for the Denver Nuggets. You know he had been taking a back seat, and and likely as he should have done against when you got a guy putting up two fifty and a forty piece. You know you just kind of let him keep doing his thing until the wheels fall off, right? But Jokic yeah, finished yeah. with thirty fourteen and four, fifty two percent shooting from the field, forty percent from deep, and hundred percent from the line. So he had a fifty forty ninety night in, in Game Seven and. That's how, to me, like that's obviously what ended up ma- making all the difference for for the Nuggets there, Austin. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely you know what you know, said well, about them being tired. Game seven was probably too true. You know, Murray looked bad again too, or looked bad finally too. Seven of twenty-one. You know, one of six from three. You know, that kind of says that bad three-point shooting kind of says his legs probably weren't all the way under him. Um, Jokic, Jokic kind of. Kind of 
probably got an advantage there with the game slowing down a little bit, a little bit less up and down, maybe a little bit more half court, you know, let him get into the flow of his offense a little bit better. He's not the most athletic guy, but you know, he's obviously extremely talented. I think that might have helped him. Um, you know, free throw shooting in game seven was even. Both teams made, teams made 10 free throws. Utah only out rebounded them by two on the board. They were plus 12 in the paint. Um, you know, it was a pretty even back and forth game. Obviously, Utah had a last shot at Red Dan there to win. Um, another cool thing, Rudy Gobert actually had uh, 10 points and 12 rebounds in the fourth quarter. I saw that that was the first double-double in the fourth quarter of a playoff game ever. So, wow. Cool. Interesting. I would have never pegged him to be the first to do that. Right. I didn't think so either. But, uh, yeah, I guess it's the first time it's ever happened in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. So, you know, he stepped up. big. minuscule stats. Right. Yeah. I, I have this uh, subscription to um, – a website that gives you this little email every day with crazy stats from like history or that date. And so that's where I got a lot of the stuff from. Um, it's pretty interesting. Little tidbits to throw in there. Um, you know, I, I, picked, I think we both picked Denver to win this series. I, I think I picked Denver to win in like five games. So obviously, you know, I didn't give Utah as much credit as they deserve. Um, it was just a strange way to end such a offensively geared series, you know? Yeah, and it was and it was almost being like advertised as like, hey, you don't want to miss this match. It's guaranteed mm-hmm. to be fireworks involved in the show. And right. There were mainly mainly only a couple of fireworks left this entire time. And and you did say that we did say prior to that we would pick Denver, but as the series progressed and Denver being down three one with the way that those matches were going, I was I was like, there's no way Denver can win three straight. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, here they are. So I'm glad to see that my long-term vision was true and my short-term gut check was like, no, you, you need to stick with your original thought process. Right, I think, I think I think we both need to work on uh, sticking to our guns a little bit in some of these series because at least me for sure, I've definitely wavered and should have just kept with my original picks. Yeah, and what was what else was big for the Nuggets in that game is that Gary Harris came back. He didn't really do much. He only finished with four points and three rebounds. But his defense was actually pretty pretty solid in this matchup. You know, there was a couple times where he made some great stops, played good help defense, and really helped the Nuggets along into winning this game. And you know, hopefully we can we will continue to see that improve, and he'll get his legs underneath them and be able to be a bigger part of the Nuggets rotation depending on how Michael Porter Jr. plays, right? Right, and if he keeps shooting the way he did in game six and seven, it's probably going to open the door for Gary Harris to get some more minutes there. And, you know, going forward, it's only going to help him. You know, they've played with him for, I think they said it's been six months since he's played a game before that game. Before that game. So, you know, they're used to playing without him, but it's got to be, you know, a little bit of a shot in the arm for everybody to see him back out there with him, even if it's just, you know, a mental thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, did you have any other notes that you wanted to cover for that series, or are you um, ready to I'm, talk about? I'm good to move on if you are. Man, I'm gonna let you open for this one because boy, howdy, am I just ready to heap on a big "I told you so" to anybody that doubted me. All right, all right, I'll go ahead. We're gonna talk about the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. You know, we have notes for Game One of the series. The second game actually just ended a little bit ago. Um, Milwaukee did lose. That, yeah. yeah, Milwaukee yeah, did Milwaukee lose the, uh, the first game to Miami, one fifteen to one hundred four. 
They were without Eric Bledsoe. Jimmy Butler is the story of the whole thing so far, obviously. He had a postseason career high, 40 points. Uh, Dragic, 27-6-5, shot 60% of from the field, 40% from three. You know, it's kind of the same old thing we saw against Indiana. The heat, keep it close, keep it close. And then in the fourth quarter, Jimmy Butler makes big plays. Um, I'll kind of just let you take it from here. Yeah, and Jimmy Butler had 40 points, which was a postseason high. He um, also had four boards and two assists. He had 60. He was 65% from the field, 100% from deep, and 100% from the free throw line. Gordon Drogic had 27.6 and five on 60% shooting from the field, 40% from deep, 100% from the line. There were two other Heat members in double-figure scoring. That was Bam Adebayo with 12 and Tyler Hero with 11. Crowder just missed his streak of double-digit scoring. He only had nine, and he hit some pretty timely three-pointers in there. What really spoke volumes to me was the Bucks' inability to get offense going, right? Because they had good production from Chris Middleton, and that was a guy that we had been harping on the entire time that they were playing the Magic and was saying, Mm -hmm. you can't come in and play this way against the Heat. They'll make you pay for it. Middleton came in and was very solid. He had 28, 6, and 5. He was 50% from deep. Lopez had 24 points, only one rebound. But, you know, with the, the way that the Bucks play, it's like a team box out, and Giannis gets the ball and pushes it up. It's very much like a Russell Westbrook or a James Harden-style mm-hmm. scheme where you want your playmaker to get the ball and have everyone else spotted up ahead of him ahead of time, right? So um, that one rebound, I'm not really focused in on that much. But Giannis... He, it wasn't really necessarily a, a poor game, right? Because he had, he almost had a triple-double. He had 18, 10, and 9. He was 50% from the floor, 40% from deep. And I want to pause right there because the James Harden criticism, you know, that still runs through almost every NBA circle that, like, all this dude does is run and dunk. That is not mm-hmm. true. Just what, if no, you watch not. him play a game, he will, he will pull up from deep, and, he, and he's pretty consistent. And he's gotten better over the as as the years progress. He's gotten better, but mm-hmm. remember the one area that I told you that I'm concerned with of the Bucks against the Heat was the free throw percentage. Mm-hmm. And he missed eight free throws in this game. He was four of twelve from from the free throw line. And that's an area that the Heat will make you pay for. Those are what I call winning stats, and they didn't mm-hmm. win those stats in that game. Right, and that's kind of what I've been saying all along about the Heat. Is that when I say they make the winning plays down the stretch, they get big rebounds, they don't miss free throws. They're a good shooting team. You know, they get stops when they need to. Um, you can say Giannis had a good game. He did have a good game, but he's got to be more aggressive. Take twelve shots. He needs to take twenty-four shots. He needs to double that out. And, and, and you know, especially if he's shooting sixty percent. You know, like you said, he he does do a lot of running and dunking. And I mean, it's to be expected. That he's, he can get, the, get from the three-point line to the rim with one step. Like, it's unreal. And, you know, he, why not, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. But And he but does pull up for three, and he did shoot well in that game. game. He just needs to be more aggressive. And Middleton had a good game, but they, him and Giannis both kind of disappeared in the fourth quarter. They combined for, like, 
two of eight from the field for eight points, I think, in the fourth quarter. You've got to get more out of them in a timely moment. And that's, you know, where Miami kills Jimmy Butler always makes big plays. He has all year. He has for a few years now. You know, I, I watched him a lot when he was with the Bulls, and he, he kind of the same role for them. He made a lot of big plays at the end of the games. You know, they had Dwayne Wade there then, too, so he kind of deferred to him a little bit. But, but Jimmy Butler's kind of always been – a guy who just makes the right play at the right time more often than not. Um, and Milwaukee can't give up that kind of a rebounding edge and expect a win. You know, that's one of the things that they really, really did really well during the regular season was defend the paint and rebound. And that's the two things that they didn't do well in game one. Yeah, and you look at the plus 18 and points in the paint, you know, um, that Miami was better at. They were plus three on turnovers, so you can't turn the ball over against Miami. There was only a, a one foul difference. You can kind of wish you washed that one away or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the, the 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 plus 12 on the boards and the plus five on the offensive rebounds that you're mm-hmm. given an Eric Spolstra coach team with a guy like Jimmy Butler, who, where do we put him as far as rankings go in the NBA? Because he always feels like the guy that's like, he's not really a superstar, but he's like a, a, a high star. Where does that fall? You know, just uh, kind of uh, gut check. I mean, mean, honestly, honestly, I don't know that he's he's quite at superstar level. I think if he takes the heat to the finals or the East East or Conference Finals this year and makes a deep playoff run, you kind of have to put him in that category. category. Uh, I think Uh, he's making a good case for it. He's Since the season restarted, he's kind of been the finisher for this team. And, you know, we always talk about in the playoffs, teams need a guy that can, you know, close out the game. They can get a big bucket when they need him to. And... You know, believe it or not, in the, the first, really the first two games of this series, um, Butler's been the guy, and Giannis really hasn't. And so, I mean, I would say that these playoffs are going a long way to push him into that super, superstar category for sure. Yeah, and just to update the listeners and viewers right now, going into halftime in Game Seven, Houston is up by two points, sixty-one to fifty-nine, and that's going to be the series that we discuss next. But, right. Right. And we can just kind of highlight a little bit on what we just saw today in a in another crazy ups. I keep saying hashtag not an upset because Milwaukee's kryptonite all season long has been the Miami Heat. Even when they beat them in the bubble, it took a heroic fourth quarter effort, and it took everything going wrong for Miami for them to lose in in their third matchup. So I don't know, man. Like. Miami beating Milwaukee is not an upset. I get the point that, yeah, they're the fourth seed and that, yeah, Milwaukee is the first seed and they're expected to make a you know a run at a championship this season. I get that. But to me, when I watch them, like this is not an upset to me. And talking about the game that just happened earlier, right before we recorded is when the results came out. But Miami beat the Bucks, um 116-114 to 114 in a close game most of the way through. And... I just want to speak on the last little bit of the game, and I think that that will be sufficient to kind of cover the highlights. The three-point shot foul that happened on as Chris Middleton was shooting over Goran Dragic, I thought was a botched call. And Mm -hmm. from what I've been seeing, any kind of suspect play like that, you know, you can't challenge under two minutes. It's kind of borrowing from the NFL and right, right. Miami didn't have their challenge anyway. They they unsuccessfully challenged the play way back in the first quarter. So that kind of that's probably going to bolster any coach's you know philosophy on no, we're going to save these for the last 
quarter of the mm-hmm. game. I think, and I don't think Eric Spolcher will ever challenge in the first quarter ever again. Probably after not. That. But going to that play, he couldn't challenge it anyway. But what I'm so used to seeing is the NBA reviewing those plays, and it seemed like the Bucks almost ran a no huddle offense to the free throw line to get those three free throws mm-hmm. up, and that wasn't even reviewed at all. And to me, that was very suspicious. And then we saw Middleton hit all three of those games, or excuse me, all three of those um, free throw attempts to tie the game. And then we saw Jimmy Butler get the ball, advance it all the way to his end of the court, shot a fadeaway um, two-point shot. We saw Giannis actually commit a foul, So the, and they did review that play. They actually reviewed that one that the foul was called on Jimmy Butler, and Giannis wrapped around him. And he rightfully, with zero seconds on the clock, all Jimmy Butler had to do was hit one free throw to win the game. He hit the first one. The second one was just for formality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was your thought process when you saw those last two plays and how it seemed how they were just handled so differently? Well, it doesn't make, it doesn't sense, make sense, sense why they, wouldn't, why they wouldn't review one, one and review the other. other. I think that's the worst, the worst thing about all of it. All you know, it. say what you will about, about the two about fouls. The foul. I would have liked to see them both be no calls. Um, honestly, uh, I think the second foul, second foul looked like more of a foul than the first one, but I don't really think it was. The shot was already away. You know, I don't think it affected the shot too much on Jimmy Butler's shot. But the, the one with Middleton, I think, should have been reviewed. Um, it's a tough way to end a playoff. Had a great, I thought Drogic had a had great defensive position established. He didn't slide underneath them. He gave him plenty of landing space. He didn't. He, you know, arms straight up, didn't lean. Just oh, I, there. I, agree I agree completely. That's that's, that's what I mean. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't make sense, sense that they would, would, you know, within a minute of each other, within, within a, a couple, couple of plays of each other, they make they two controversial calls and handle them completely differently. differently. You know, regardless of which way they go with the calls, you know, there needs to be consistency with how they handle it. I think, and I think going forward, that's something that the league might look at. Um, I don't know about the last two minutes being able to challenge or not. I, I almost think if if we're trying to get the call right, it shouldn't make a difference. I think if, if you're either trying to get it right or you're not. And the, the point in time in the game shouldn't make a difference. But like I said, you know, it's a tough way to end a really close playoff game, you know, with no time left on the free throw line like that. But, you know, Giannis has to has to kind of know that, too. And I think he did about as good a job as can be expected to test the shot and really not make too much contact with him. But, you know, Kyle Lowry is somebody that's really good at this, too. And sometimes selling a, selling a foul is, is a, yeah, is a, you know, a elite skill that you can have in the NBA. You know, Kyle Lowry, Lowry, I've seen so many times drive down the lane. Jimmy Butler does it too. James Harden's probably the king of it. You know, they drive down the lane and don't even hardly get touched. But you throw your arms up and fall over, and then, you know, more often than not, they call a foul. You kind of got to know that going into it. Yeah, it's like you almost have to have a reputation of being able to be successful at that to mm-hmm. even attempt it, right? So it's like right. how, how far early in your career do you try to establish, you know, being a player that just acts like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and Jimmy Butler is a guy that is getting better at that, and he didn't come in as a polished offensive guy. He came more as a defensive guy. So right, right. And it was nice, though. I will say to Giannis's credit for him to at to close out the game. At least he did step out on Jimmy Butler because mm-hmm. he got criticized a lot for, and, and rightfully so. I wasn't a really big fan of how he when someone asked like, "Hey, you know, did you talk to your coach about you know if you wanted to guard Jimmy Butler?" 
and Giannis was kind of snippy and was like, why would you ask that question? Mm-hmm. Well, like, because this is basketball and the be- and you're a defensive player of the year and this right. guy was hot and, you know, you're more than capable of matching up with him and we're in the playoffs and you could have gone 1-0 instead of being down a game. Like, mm-hmm. do we need to keep going as to reasons why we have to ask a professional basketball player why he, if he wanted to play defense against the right. other team's best player? It's not like it's, it's not the like NFL, NFL where, where, you know, a lot of times you have a shutdown cornerback, but he plays on one side of the field because, because that's, that's just the defensive, defensive, you know, how they how set it up. And that's just the strategy. strategy. Like, like in basketball, it's, basketball, it's kind of like the best players guard the best players on the other team more often than not. Unless it's, you know, I'm not going to say like Chris Paul's going to guard Jokic or something like that, you know, but, you know, if it's close like that, Giannis is definitely capable of staying with with Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they wouldn't put him on there. And, and he you just would got think a defensive player of the year. Exactly. Uh, you would you think, think he would have the, the I, guess, I guess, fire in his belly to want to go do that, to want that challenge. And most of the time in the NBA, in sports in general, the best guys say, you know, get out of here. I'm guarding him with the coach tries to say something else you know how many times we hear about lebron in a huddle you know they call a play and he's like okay well this is what we're actually gonna do and you know he takes the clipboard and says you know you know you're giving me the ball it's the same thing on defense you know i'm i want to guard him you know that's it's at least the mentality that everybody wants their best player to have for sure and you should you should definitely want to like not saying you have to guard him the entire game like no one's asking that but like in clutch moments like why would you not, like, with a game on the line, you're the defensive player of the year, you're probably going to be the MVP. Mm-hmm. Why on earth do you not want to try to check Jimmy Butler to close out the game? Just for a possession. Just for a possession. Why would you not want to do that? I agree. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, in the, especially in the last moments of the game, he needs to be on him for sure. Yeah, and just real quick, and we'll move on to Houston versus Oklahoma City. Uh I just want to say shout out to the Chicago Bulls, shout out to the Minnesota Timberwolves, and shout out to the Philadelphia 76ers who just, for whatever reason, want to excuse away why they don't need Jimmy Butler. You know, he's, you know, is he too competitive? You know, does he, does he want to win at any cost? Like, you know, right, is he right. too abrasive? You know, is he coachable? You know, whatever excuse you want to, I'm so glad to see him in Miami. And again, this kind of reestablishes that that conversation, like. Exactly how good is Jimmy Butler? Where does he fall within the, you know, the, you know, kind of the rankings of the top, the top players in the NBA because of, you know, the hand in glove fit of the Miami culture and just Jimmy Butler's desire to win and have guys around him that want it just as bad as he does. Right. right. And, and the one that really, that really kind, of kind of irks me is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. You, know, you know, everybody says really they didn't said. want him. I see both sides to it. They offered him a max contract, but I think his real issue was with Brett Brown. Um, Not as many years, though. So, like, you can say max money, but they didn't want to commit for the, as long. That's the, okay, that's that's the key. Kind of well, that, that might be the case, case but, but I think, I think part, part of it, too, was, was, you know, I don't think he wanted to play for Brett Brown. I don't, his personality really fit. Apparently, Apparently Ben Simmons, Simmons because it seems like him and Embiid are still really close. Yeah. Twitter. Uh, and you would think Embiid would be the type of guy that would get on his nerves, being such a hard worker and, and you know, so demonstrative, demonstrative. And um, Embiid's definitely somebody that 
is been called out of shape. You know, he's been called lazy. I disagree with those statements. Yeah, because I was going to say, remember, we talked about this not too long ago whenever, you know, Boston. No, I, I don't agree with that, but you hear it nonstop, like, from fans, from media, and everyone. And I think it's crazy. You know, it's the same thing they used to say about Shaquille O'Neal. It's like, yeah, he's 325 pounds, but look at him. Like, he's, you know, he's still scoring 35 points and giving, giving 15 rebounds. Like, what more do you want from a guy? Embiid is lazy. How is he averaging 30 and 12? Exactly. If he is, then he's otherworldly good. He's so much better than people realize. It's incredible. If he's if he's not trying hard and he's still going out and dominating like he does, it doesn't make sense. He is an emotional player. I'll give you that. But speaking of emotional players, that's a great segue into the Houston OKC game that we got to watch prior to the one that's on today. It was a um, 104 to 100 victory for Oklahoma City. And this coming off the heels of it seeming like Houston had Oklahoma City figured out in that in the win that they had prior to, right? Where they played mm-hmm. off of Lou Dortz. You know, they had, you know, Westbrook didn't have that great of a game. But, um, you know, it, it just felt like Houston had OKC figured out. They just needed to close them out this last game. And I, you weren't on the show, but I told my buddy, um, couch coach, that, I said, you know LeBron James called up Chris Paul and said, hey, brother, we need you to make this seven games so we can get a little Mm -hmm. bit more rest. We're tired of these back-to-backs, you know what I mean? So um, I think that he called his banana boat buddy and asked for a favor, and CP3 delivered. It was a very chippy, just stare, an exchange of glances, an exchange of, you know, just elbows and headbutts. Yes. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll just go ahead and get into this game, you know. Mm -hmm. CP3 added another game to his Hall of Fame resume, 15 fourth-quarter points. He ended up finishing with 28-6-3 on 50% shooting from the field, 50% from deep, 100% from the line. Gallo chipped in with a lowly 25-5-1 on 53% shooting from the field, only 44% shooting from deep, and 100% from the line. There were three other um, Thunder um, players in double figures. Dortz had 13, Schroeder had 12, and SGA had 10. And... To Houston's credit, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a big blowout by any means. You know, Harden had a good game. You know, Westbrook had a better game than the game before. And, uh, you know, got a decent decent outing from Covington. And, and House is, I think, becoming one of our favorite, you know, Rockets players, uh, you know, between the two of us, Austin. And, you know, he, he's having decent games, but it just it was OKC's night, it felt like, you know. Hey, sorry, I sorry, lost I it for a minute there. there. Oh, no, it's okay. Did I, was that me or did I lose you? I don't know. My, my whole my screen just went black for a second, for a second but uh, I'm back I'm now. Back sorry about that. Were, were you blacked out or was I blacked out? We both we were. were. Oh, okay. Um, yep. I don't know who all heard what, but basically just to summarize what happened, um, <laughs> it was a close game. You know, um, Chris Paul had a, a, a game of, you know, to add to his resume. Gallinari had a, a good game. Um, Dort had 13, Schroeder had 12, SGA had 10. And then for the Rockets part, you know, they had um, James Harden had 32, 8, and 7, um, shot 50% from the field. Um, pretty pretty bad from outside, actually. 27% from the three-point line, 3 of 11, and 87% from the free-throw line. And then Westbrook had a better game than in, than in game five, um, had 17, 4, and 3, shot 50% from the field, 50% from deep, and missed both of his free throws. 
Um, Covington had 18 points. And House, I was saying that he's kind of, it feels like he's kind of becoming one of our favorite Rocket players between the two of us. Every time Mm -hmm. we talk about the Rockets, we always find a way to bring in Daniel House into the conversation. And, uh, you know, he he had 12. Um, It was just, it just felt like it was OKC's night again, man. And this game seven doesn't feel like it's getting any, you know, it's any easier to kind of tell the way it's going. It seems like it's going to be a uh-huh. fourth quarter decision. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely, definitely uh, uh, it's, it's back, back and forth game, game for sure. sure. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the recipe. Oklahoma City is going to have to make it a, a close, close game. game. They're going to have to, um, you know, dirty it up. Not dirty it up a little bit, but make it a little bit more physical. They're not going to blow out the, the Rockets. I think if both teams play their A game, I do think the Rockets are the better team. I think they've shown that in their three wins. Uh, you know, they average like eight turnovers a game in their three wins and 17 a game in their three losses. Um, so that's a, a big difference there. Uh, one thing I did want to mention about Chris Paul's game six, you know, you mentioned that he had the, the big stat line. He did all that with zero turnovers as well. Um, that's the fourth time in his career he's had a 25 points and zero turnovers in a playoff game. So that's that's pretty impressive. Um, I just think, you know, Houston beats themselves and Oklahoma City doesn't. Uh, they, they play kind of the same every game. And Houston's kind of streaky. And I think that's kind of the, the give and take of the as many threes as they shoot. You know, if they're, they're the since they the season restarted, they're the worst rebounding team that's been in Orlando. And I think that's another byproduct of the small ball. But um, so they're not going to get a lot of second opportunities. They're not going to get a lot more out of their offense if it's not fast breaks and making threes or Harden or Westbrook in the free throw line. And, um, you know, down the stretch of that game, you know, Westbrook had a couple turnovers that uh, were really costly. And I found about that. Oh, go ahead. Finish with that stat. I do have a stat for you that I thought you would like. Um, I read this yesterday. Uh, Westbrook, Westbrook and Harden are combined five for 41 from the field in the last minute of the fourth quarter in overtime on potential game-tying or go-ahead shots in their careers. And they have the two worst field goal percentages in those situations since they started keeping track of play-by-play data in 1997. So that is insane. Yeah, that's crazy. Five of 41. They're the two worst ever, and they're on the same team. That's insane. Five of 41. That, I mean... 41 shots, it feels like a small sample size, but when you consider like how often you're in that particular situation, mm-hmm. that spans seasons. It's not just for right. this year. That's, that's their whole career. It's the entire career. So it's not that they're just putting a, a weird situation for mm-hmm. a season or so. You know, right. this is their entire it's career. kind of the book on both those guys for sure. So how, how much blame do you put on Russell Westbrook for that game six loss? Um, you know, I think you have to put a good amount of the blame on him. I think as long as James Harden is on the team, he's going to get the majority of the blame no matter what happens. Uh, win, lose, or draw. You know, he, he's going to get the credit when they win. And Westbrook will get some of the credit too because he is a, a big star as well. But I think he, you have to look at those turnovers as kind of the – you know, the turning point in the game. I, you can't really say much else. You can say Harden didn't shoot well, Harden didn't do this well, but he's still, look at his stat line. He's still scored over 30 points. He still, you know, is 
doing a lot three, of things on three off. Three of eleven from deep, though. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I think that's what I mean. I don't think you can put it all on Westbrook. I think a lot of it goes on him, on his shoulders, on those turnovers, and I just think he has mental lapses at the end of the game, and it's like he thinks, you know, maybe it's like he's back in Oklahoma City and has to do it all by himself. And he's kind of always been that way. Kevin Durant with him. And I just, I think at this point in your career, if you know, you've missed as many game-winning shots or tying shots as those guys have, you think to try something else. So seven turnovers, awful, right? The, yeah. the, the turnover he had at the end of the game, terrible, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's just awful. Mm-hmm. Here's my thing, you know, and James Harden. I'm not trying to take away. And again, I, this is the only time I've ever like actually enjoyed watching Houston play like mm-hmm. ever. And I will say that Russell Westbrook, those seven turnovers were awful. I'm not going to argue that, but I will also argue that he was a big reason why they were in the game in the first place. You know, yeah. he, he made, he made big fourth quarter shots to get them in the, to get them in the lead when Harden just kind of fizzled out in the fourth man. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get, you know, is Harden a killer, you know, does he want it in the, in those situations and the big, in the big criticism that Harden got on that lat on the way that the game ended is that why on earth is he, does he not have the ball in his hand to close out the fourth? Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a question. I just want you to be honest. And I know that you will, because you're just that type of dude, right? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? to have Russell Westbrook, who could probably advance the ball at the court at a 99 percentile in the NBA. You know, he can advance the ball up the court as quick as anybody in the entire NBA can. Mm-hmm. And would it not be hard for the defense to play catch up with Russell Westbrook sprinting at breakneck speed up the court to then give the ball to James Harden, who is one of the best triple threat offensive players in NBA history, so you're having a defense play catch up to a sprinting breakneck pace Russell Westbrook and you give the ball to Harden to close out the game off of a triple threat stance. Does that not seem like it would be like a recipe to try to win the game? Yeah, um, you know, not to oversimplify it, but I mean, I think it is pretty simple. Like that seems to make sense to me. And I think that's kind of where I say, you know, Westbrook kind of makes those mental lapses for, you know, I think maybe that was the plan and he just kind of fumbled the ball out of bounds, you know, got a little too far down the court. And I think that's kind of the risk you take with doing that that way is he, he can get a little bit out of control. And, you know, we've seen that plenty of times in his career. And I think he knows that. And I think Houston knows that. And he's just got to, you know, he's got to execute in that situation. I think they tried I think, I think honestly, from from the way you described it, that's kind of what they looked like they were trying to do. He just kind of got stuck and threw the ball away. Yeah, and right now I'm I'm peeking over my shoulder. Um, you can see that, but maybe the people listening don't know. I'm peeking over my shoulder, and I just saw Russell Westbrook pull up. Uh, you know, hit the brakes on a mid-range jump shot, and shot the ball over Stephen and Adams to give him the. The, the, to give the Rockets a six-point lead over the Thunder. Mm-hmm. So, like, these are not the moments where people are like, oh, hey, look at all the good stuff that Russell Westbrook is doing. But if he turns right, the right. ball over, heaven forbid, you know what I mean? So, like, it just seems like it was that game in that sequence in particular was, like, a perfect, like, encapsulation of how Russell Westbrook is on any given night. He will, mm-hmm. he will be a reason that you're in a game, but he could also cost you a game. And 
I just saw so much criticism against Russell Westbrook turning the ball over and then mm-hmm. for James Harden not wanting the ball. And to me, like, there's a world that I could see where, like, why would you – like what I basically said earlier, right? Like, why would you not want one of the fastest dudes that could advance the ball in, in closing seconds of a game and then mm-hmm. give the ball to James Harden while the defense isn't set to allow him to take advantage and get to the free throw line to convert, you know, maybe mm-hmm. an and one or, you know, pull up for a three or something like that. Right, right. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't know. I just felt like that was picked apart a little bit too much. From yeah, the, there's, there's another, another school, school of thought there, though, though, where, you know, Harden does bring the ball down most often, and he never really had a whole lot of trouble getting to the rim against a set defense anyway. And, you know, it may be the best idea to put the ball in his hands and let him – you know, make a play because that's what they do almost all the rest of the game. And, you know, so it, it can go either way. Both of them could work, but I just think both of those guys, as long as they've been in the league and as many opportunities as they've had to, you know, make it to the finals or win a championship and the fact that neither of them have done it yet, you know, that's that's what everybody's going to talk about. You know, it doesn't matter what they do the first in, you know, three quarters and nine, ten minutes in the game. What really matters is if it's a close game, is what everybody's going to talk about is the last couple of minutes and whether or not they even have really anything to do with it. It's going to be did Harden and Westbrook get it done or did Harden and Westbrook lose the game? You know, you didn't hear nearly enough about all the great plays that Oklahoma City made at the end of the game. You hear about the bad plays Houston made. And it's kind of the same thing we talked about with LeBron and the Lakers. You give all of the credit and when they win and they get all the blame when they lose. And sometimes, you know, Oklahoma City is just making good plays. They've been, like you said, they have that clutch lineup. They've been one of the most clutch teams in the fourth quarter all year. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and I see right now I just keep peeking over my shoulder and I see mm-hmm. Russell Wilson or, wow, Ru- Russell Westbrook making winning plays, man. And, like, yep. it, he just can't let him look. All right. And now, again, for another series that I'm, like, I'm super giddy about and, like, I'm almost in my I told you so mode. And I feel like we, we both have uh, been really big fans of the Boston Celtics and the way that they've played. You know, we, yes. were, we were a little bit afraid when Goran Dragic stepped down. But, um, you know, they have a 2-0 lead now on the defending NBA champions. And I don't hear as much of a uh, saying, like, well, this Toronto Raptors team did better than this year than they did when they had Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. Like, they could easily win a championship again this year. And Mm -hmm. it's only 2-0. I could eat a big plate of crow, you know, in about a week's time. Right, right. It's it's looking like our team that we wanted to win is uh, doing a good job there, Austin. Yeah, and, you know, Toronto was in the same spot last year. They got down 2-0 to Milwaukee and, and... Went on to win four straight, but that team had Kawhi Leonard, and they made a big switch. They put, they did what Milwaukee's kind of refusing to do against Miami, and put their best defender on the other team's best player, and kind of really changed the face of that series. Um, you know, I've said it a million times. I'm sure I've said it a million times on this show, but in the playoffs, you have to have a closer. You have to have a guy that can go and get you tough two point baskets in you know crunch time, and. It definitely in game two of this series, uh, Pascal Siakam faded in the big moments. You know, I've heard so much about how all year that Nick Nurse has been grooming him to be, you know, the Kawhi Leonard type, you know, be that closer for this team. And you can see, at least in game two for sure, he, he played all right in game one. Um, game two, he definitely faded down the stretch of that game. 
and you saw, you know, Walker had a terrible shooting night, and he made two big shots down the stretch. Marcus Smart didn't do anything for the fourth quarter. He made five threes in the fourth quarter, and you know, and game one was a little bit different. Game one, you could see, you know, Toronto's. Um, game plan was to get the ball out of Tatum's hands, and it was kind of the opposite. Everybody else was kind of doing everything until towards the end of the game, he took over a little bit more. Whereas in game two, he, he kept Boston in it until everybody else kind of woke up. And I think Kemba actually talked about that after the game. He said, you know, in, in past seasons, when I had a game like this, we probably got blown out. So it's, it's awesome to have other guys with him that, uh, that can pick up the slack. Um, but, um, but, you know, you I, know just, I just, like, like I, said, I said, I think the main difference between these two teams, teams is, is one team is relying on two undersized guards to get a lot of threes, and they don't really have a go-to guy, and the other team has two or three go-to guys. Yeah, and that's not at 100% strength either when they have that. When they're fully healthy, they have about four guys that can give you those buckets. And then they have who what i am calling and i'm going to i'm actually working on a piece on this Austin now because i've been saying it over the past two games Marcus Smart is the best glue guy in the nba mm-hmm. and i i just keep saying it because and what do i mean by that right like so he's not a the third best player on the team there's not even a case that you can make for him being a third best on this right. team right he he's not an mvp candidate he's not a all nba first second or third teamer you know he's a defensive mm-hmm. player um you know, uh, all NBA defensive teamer, right? And and that's where he makes his money. But over the past few games, man, like he's been lights out from three. He makes timely passes. Obviously, he's a big hustle and effort and energy guy, which, you know, any you know he can do that starting or coming off the bench. It just seems like it, it, he doesn't have to be in a certain spot to succeed, right, where mm-hmm. we see a guy like Lou Williams who just, for whatever reason, thrives coming off of the bench. You know, Marcus Smart is like, Hey man, Gordon Drives was down, but it's cool because we got Marcus Smart coming off the bench. He can get you 21 in game one. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He's not a guy that we talk about that can get you 20 points in a game very often. But the very first game, that's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I he definitely you know I was reading what you were saying about glue guys last night, and I was trying to think of some other guys that could be could challenge him for the best glue guy. And it's it's hard to even really think of anybody that does as much as he does for their team. You know, PJ Tucker. PJ Tucker's one that I would I would maybe say the glue guy. You know, Oklahoma City's got a couple that you could you could probably put in that category as well. Um, but you know, Marcus Smart's one of the most underrated players in the NBA. You know, he's probably uh, should be challenging for defensive player of the year or you know at least be multiple time first team all defense he um, should be a first teamer this year for right and you know people forget too how good of an offensive player he was in college you know he was a superstar in college and something that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me with this boston team is why everyone at least not anymore so much but for a while everyone was surprised at how good they were you know, they've got three top three picks and Gordon Hayward. You know, they've got, you know, if you draft well, you should expect to be a really good team within four or five years drafting that high that often. And they're not even, like, extremely deep either. Like, right. we, they have maybe three or four guys that they can lean on, not on a consistent basis. Like, Robert mm-hmm. Williams, we could talk about his game now. Right, he had, he's, he's he had really 11 tough. points. He was 5 of 5 in the, in the first quarter when they needed a punch. And 
This is a guy that, you know, over his previous 16 playoffs games, scored a total of six points between all of those games combined. Mm-hmm. And, and Brad Steven is like, you know what? Enos Kander is not going to play. Let's just put in Robert Williams. And his athleticism, his defense, you know, his verticality are, are all things that mm-hmm. just really are, are really difficult for the Toronto Raptors to to handle. And here we were saying that, like, okay, if Boston struggles at all, it's going to be because they have to match up with Mark Gasol and Serge Ibaka. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think Toronto's really used their size to their advantage at all. I mean, I know they're – uh, a, a kind of a new style offense. They spread the ball around a lot. I know they like, like to, to uh, you, know, you know, play, play almost, almost five guys out, out a lot. Mm-hmm. But you would think in this series that they would try to, you know, dominate in the paint a little bit. You know, Daniel Tice is pretty undersized. They start four other guys that are, are a fairly small lineup compared to, you know, who they're compared to uh, Toronto. Um, but, you know, the, the Gordon Hayward injury definitely changes their depth a lot. You know, they go from having arguably one of the best in the NBA to really having a pretty thin bench. Uh, you know, Brad Wanamaker's play, you know, it's pretty here and there. Play good. He's played a lot more minutes now than he has all year. And, you know, what you said about Williams is completely true, too. Um, another cool thing I read about him is he had – Zero career halves where he even made five field goals. And in the two playoff games against Toronto, he's been five for five in either the first or second half of each game. So, you know, he's shooting better than he ever has before and playing better. And he's had some, you know, energy play. He's had some big dunks, you know, that have kind of got, you know, got the other Celtics players off the bench a little bit, you know, give them some light. Um, and then some things about Toronto I wanted to kind of mention too. Uh, you know, uh, you, you know, can't, can't have Van Vliet and Lowry shoot as bad as they have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Van Vliet was three of three in the first game. I think they're like between the two of them, they're shooting like under thirty percent for the series, or it's like right at thirty percent. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's around there. And you know, if they're going to rely on lineups that have both of those guys in there a lot, they're they're pretty undersized when they play both of them side by side, and. They're not, they're not the greatest, greatest defenders. defenders. Lowry's, Lowry's, Lowry's a pretty good defender, but Van Vliet's definitely in there for his offense. Um, well, I mean, he's he's also like, I'll interject here. Like Van Vliet's also a very good defender. It's just yeah. that if you're talking about matching up in, in this series, right, where mm-hmm. you know it, it's hard to match up with Boston because you said they start a small lineup. So if you put Van Vliet on, you know, Marcus Smart or Kemba Walker then you have to do the same thing with Kyle Lowry, but you still leave your two biggest weapons and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown susceptible, mm-hmm. and you only have one OG Ananubi to throw on those guys. Right. That's where the problem is. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's true. That's it's true. not that he's not, not a good not defender. defender. It's just, you know, you the know, matchups match don't fit too well in this series for him. And, you know, you've got to give credit to Brad Stevens, too. You know, I saw a thing about, you know, the first series against Philadelphia – you know, they were going against two or three, you know, subpar defenders almost all the time on the court. Philadelphia's not. Without Ben Simmons, their defense on the perimeter really suffered. And, you know, they, they ran a lot of isolation, and that worked for that series. You know, a lot of one-on-one matchups. And you can't do that against Toronto. They they play hard, you know, straight-up one-on-one defense. They, they 
They don't give you anything real easy. You have to move the ball a lot. And we've seen the kind of a complete shift in their offensive philosophy philosophy from one series to the next. And that just shows you how dangerous Boston is. You know, they can beat you in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no doubt. And when you look at this game, though, game two, I felt like that if if Toronto lost that game, there's no chance for them in this series. And again, we talked about how, you know, you come back with games like last year, you did the same thing against Milwaukee. Two different teams. One, it's different. They're playing against a completely different team. And two, they are a completely different team than they were that last season, right? So um, it it's just really hard because if you look at what I like, I keep referring to them as the winning stats, right? Uh, let's see here. I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong page. So the Raptors were plus, listen, the losing team, the Toronto Raptors, were plus seven in assists. They were plus five in turnovers. They were plus 20 on points in the paint. And they had one fewer foul. They were only out-rebounded by four. Yeah, that's, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And you look, you know, Celtics outscored them by seven from the free throw line. They shot 12% better from three. They made four more threes. And it's not like it was a blowout. It's just, the, you know, game one, the Celtics had the lead from beginning to end. And it was a little rough for Toronto. But the game was a lot closer in game two. Um, the Raptors made a lot of plays. You know, they, they, they did a lot of what they needed to do to win that game. I think they have to feel like they let one slip through their fingers. You know, they're not going to get a whole lot of 0 for 8 those taps from Kemba Walker. No, not at all. They're not going to get a whole lot of, you know, three points from the first three quarters from Marcus Smart. You know, they they had an op- a lot of opportunities to win this game. And I'm with you. Um, I don't think they, they have a chance in the series now. I think they had to get that game. You know, we could feel like you said, we could in a week's time both weeks in a completely different tune. But um, I've been pretty confident that. I've picked Boston from the very beginning. We started doing this together. You and I both did. And, you know, that's not easy for me. I, I hate Boston Celtics. You know, I grew up a huge Lakers fan. I've always not liked the Celtics. And, you know, I told you about my, you know, indifference towards Jason Tatum. Um, that's definitely changed. Uh, I really – I always knew he was good. I kind of tried to force myself to not watch him because I don't like the Celtics. And I let my fandom definitely get in the way there. The more I watch him, the more I just love his game. He does everything well. He's stronger than I ever thought he was. He's a better defender than I realized. He's shooting the lights out of the ball. He's a great free throw shooter. And, you know, we talk about those winning plays a lot. He's another guy that has made winning plays all since the bubble restarted. And, you know, Kemba Walker. Kemba Walker is known for making those big plays and those you know, turn around, stop on a dime jumpers, like you were talking about Russell Westbrook earlier. You know, and you have to have no conscience to be 0 for 7 from 3. Two minutes left in the game, it's a three-point game, and you, you, know, you throw up a 27-footer and just nail it, you know, and then you stop the next time and make another big shot. And, you know, it's just, it goes to show, even when he was at UConn, when he had that run in the Big East tournament and the NCAA tournament, you know, he's kind of been known as this guy that, he can just get hot, and in big moments, he makes big shots. Yeah, and, I mean, cardiac Kimber, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, going back to Tatum, I get googly eyes every time I watch this dude play. Right, right. He was the guy, like, when I first started looking, like, in-depth at college, you know, basketball and how they'll translate to the pros. Mm-hmm. I had no, like, and I get it, you know, and we've talked about this before. I get how good Markel Fultz was. I did not think that he was going to be bad, and I'm glad that right. he's in Orlando and, 
looking like he's going to kind of turn it around a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, man, every time I watched Jason Tatum play, I saw an NBA player. Like, for sure, not like one of these guys, mm-hmm. like, where, okay, like, he's got the tools to where he should be successful. I watched him, and I was like, this dude is going to be a great NBA player. He, I felt like I was literally watching an NBA player play college, and he didn't have the expanded range, but this dude was automatic from the mid-range, and he shot great from the free throw line. These are great indicators that – you know, in the right circumstances that he's going to be able to expand his game. Mm-hmm. You know, he could, he was a capable playmaker, but he was his team's best player. So he didn't average five, six, you know, assists a game or whatever. He's has tremendous size and was very versatile, can play the two through the four and, you know, a great rebound, a great positional size, everything about him that I loved when I was like, Oh my goodness, this dude is going to be something in the NBA. Mm-hmm. He is like far and exceeded all of those things and I he's showing me uh, you know I've, I've done several shows and articles and whatnot where like I try to rank people I mean I think that's a, a pretty common thing amongst sports mm-hmm. networks and if you were asking me who I would pick number one overall in a fantasy draft and it was the young guys and including Luka Doncic I would pick a Jason Tatum because I know for sure that I'm getting a killer clutch play offensive talent and I'm getting an outstanding defender right off the mm-hmm. get. And you can just do so much more in team building with that, with all those boxes checked. Right. And, right. you know, I think if you did an under 25 team or, you know, best 25 under 25, those guys would be one and one A, honestly. And I don't, I don't think you can go wrong with either one. Um, obviously, Luke is a little bit, you know, the hotter topic right now, I guess. But, I think that goes to show Tatum's been just doing this for so long. You know, I think it's kind of become, I don't want to say old hat because he is still such a young player, but you kind of expect it from him. And, you know, I was talking with some guys on the website that I write with, and um, they, uh, they're not really, you know, into basketball as much as you and I are. And I said something about, you know, Jason Tatum and arguably the best player in the bubble once they came back. And I kind of got laughed at. Like, you know he's not the best player in the league. He's played like it. And really showed up time and time again, scoring 30 points every night, it seems like. Or, you know, if he's not, he's playing great defense, rebounding, defending, he gets assists. And, you know, I think he, what you said is spot on. I definitely thought in college he would be, you know, eventually be a, a a pretty big time player in the NBA, but I think what we're seeing now is when you see a guy with all this God-given ability couples that with, an, you know, an insane work ethic because everything you hear about him, is he just wants to get better. He's always in the gym, you know. Anybody that's been able to work out with Kobe, and you know, obviously, you know about you know about the mom mentality and all that, and you know, not only work out with them, but for Kobe to be like this dude. Right. Is- this is the real deal. And you can and you see, see a lot of a lot of that in his game. You know, you know like we talked about before, he's got he's got a move, a counter for a counter for a counter. You know, he's got his his offensive arsenal has just grown day in and day out like since he came into the league. And you know, I I kind of always I watched a little more college basketball back when he was still playing than I do now. I'm not as good as I used to be. Um but I always did but feel always like he'd be a star. And, you know, and Brandon Ingram was another one. That I think if Brandon Ingram was a little bit more aggressive, he'd be right there too. Um, but, you know, I'm also 
the guy that thought Marvin Bagley was a superstar too, and we've seen what he's done so far. So he could get there though. I thought so. I had a theory that Boston should have tried to get him in his draft class. And I mean, you're talking. Okay, like he was drafted by what team? Sacramento. And how many coaches did they had? Right. Right. How many? How they just changed general managers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and yes, he's he's been hurt a lot too. He's been hurt. Sure, but like, do you have any sort of feeling that their training staff is anywhere substantial based off of all the other evidence and chaos that we see around this team? Probably not, and I, I think that's I think part of it part too. Of it too. And, and you know, he was a guy. You know, he's one of those Duke guys. But you know, he's. I just saw the motor that he had in college and his rebounding ability and the way he goes after the ball. And it, it, those guys tend to, to translate pretty well to the NBA. And, and I just think it's taken a little longer than I've expected. But, you know, he's, I was just going more off the fact that he was drafted ahead of Trey Young and Doncic. You know, yeah, that doesn't help his case at all. Hurts. It doesn't look good right now, at least. No, it certainly does not. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not giving up on Bagley. I, I mean, because you say he's been hurt. It's not like he's been in the league and, like, has just been a dud. You know? Right. I mean, like, he's a capable player. You know, I felt like the Boston should have tried to get him in, in that draft. But, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think the jury is still out on him. And plus, like, if you're drafted by, the, you know, I can't think of another team that if you're drafted by them, you're worried for their development. Maybe Charlotte. Like mm-hmm. I was going to say Charlotte. That's the other team I was thinking about. Maybe. Maybe Minnesota. I mean, because, mm-hmm. I mean, they have Wiggins and Towns. And, did nothing at all with those guys, you know. Right. The Washington Wizards have fleshed out some good talent. You know, the the Orlando Magic has had some success, you know. So I can't think of another team, though, that, like, I would – maybe the New York Knicks. Like, yeah. yeah. Maybe, the Knicks are probably another one. And, you Cleveland know, never Ron, had, if you're listening. Never had a, much of a track record of developing the young players. players. You know, when Kyrie was there by himself, they didn't win anything. You know, Cleveland kind of got a bat to have LeBron for so long. But other than him, they've never really done much with with who they've had either. That's a fair point. But, like, the, outside of Sacramento, there may be two or three other teams that, like – Not to mention, you know, one guy, Tatum, went to probably the best possible situation that he could get in in Boston with a team that was already good with a superstar coach. Well, no, no one knew that then, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, when Tatum and Brown were brought in, like, it wasn't mm-hmm. a surefire thing that Boston was going to be what they are, what they are now. You know what right. I mean? Right. Like, Brad Stevens hasn't didn't prove much on the NBA level. You know, they didn't have, like, they kind of did a little bit of, like, what you saw Golden State do when they started developing their young guys and just targeting the right dudes and, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in veterans with some know-how. And, you know, obviously the coaching is making all the difference. In, in right. The right. But so here's, here's the kind of a cool story. story. Um, I actually went to high school with a guy named Grant Leindecker who played on the Butler teams that went, to the back-to-back national title games mm-hmm. and, and we went we, went, we got, we got tickets, tickets to games all the time and you know living down here by the school they're they're almost back then it was almost free to go to a lot of the games and so i kind of knew when they hired brad stevens i knew what he was about i knew how good of a coach he was and i remember seeing on the when they hired him they were talking about oh he's kind of a bridge the next coach he's going to be a developmental guy that's going to you know help these young guys along and i just remember thinking he's going to be the best coach you know one of the best coaches in the league in a few years and you know he's definitely lived up to that 
but uh, kind of a cool story about him from what everybody says is he got into coaching as like a hobby, you know, as a height. He started as like a high school coach because if I remember right, he was doing something else with statistics and they needed somebody to coach the team for the year at, at a local high school. And that's kind of how he got his start. And, you know, it's just been like skyrocketing that went on. Yeah, and like I'm not a, a boss. Well, I'll, I'll I'll admit it now. Like I love watching the Boston Celtics play. <laughs> Me too. I, I love their team. I love their coach. I love their GM. Like I, I'm not a dude that like grown. I'm from Arkansas again mm-hmm. originally. Like I have no business liking the Boston Celtics. It's just that everything they do, man. Like they, I cannot help but just like. And again, when I watch Jason Tatum play, I'm like. A teenage girl watching the Jonas Brothers, you know. What I mean? <laughs> like I'm just like, oh, oh no, so I got what he does. I mean, look at me. I'm from Indiana. I'm a diehard Lakers fan. That doesn't make any, make any sense either. either. Right. But the, there here we go. are. But yeah, this is a I'm really close game. game. Sorry, I keep looking away. But no, 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 no. I, I feel like I'm doing the same thing. I'm waiting for the score to come up right now. Oh, yeah. I didn't see it. But yeah, it's um. It's getting into the fourth quarter, so um, I'm, I don't see any reason for us to hang out here for another half an hour. Just so right. Right. you don't have the latest scoop and release of that. That'll be kind of you know where we pick up uh, when we mm-hmm. record on Sunday, Austin. But um, well, probably the first podcast to talk about that uh, the last game, though, the Heat and the, the Bucks. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Do a little, do a little uh, breaking the game after hours. Or after the you know emergency breaking the game reporting here right. on. September the second. Well, at least it's the second where I'm. Well, it's still the second where you are too. There. Yeah. Another, another twenty-six minutes. minutes. Another twenty-six minutes. But yeah, and we need to get you to bed. So. Oh, I'll be I'll fine. fine. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But I'm uh, stay up and watch into this game anyway. So. Yeah, it's. I'm not turning this off at all. But I, I think we've definitely, uh, you know, had a good show. We've talked a lot about all these games. We've had a lot of good games to go over. I know it's fun to be back here with you. I missed it last last time for sure. And I miss you too, brother. It's good to have you back for sure, for sure. And, you know, hopefully by then we'll have the MVP that we can talk about. And hopefully we can both say, yeah, like this is what we've been saying the entire time. If it goes right. any other way than Giannis Antetokounmpo, I'm burning I'd be out. really, really surprised. I'm burning the internet. I don't know how I'm doing <laughs> that, but I'm going to burn the internet. We'll go we'll storm the NBA off together. Yes, and we're going to cough on their doorknobs. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I mean – that does it for us here on the show. Um, all of you who have, you know, watched and listened live or going to do so later when this um, episode releases tomorrow to kind of help usher in your weekend. We, um, you know, it's been a pleasure. We love, we love doing this. We love the NBA and we love talking the NBA with other people that love the NBA. So that's kind of what right. we do, why we do what we do. Um, Austin, do you got anything that you want to kind of promote with anything that you're doing for the uh, Game Changer Sport Network? Yeah, I've been extremely busy with them. We uh, just decided that this is the first year we're going to do game recaps of every playoff game from here on out. So um, it's just like me and one or two other guys right now. So, you know, I'm pumping out a lot of articles every day, every day, every every other at least. Uh, but it's fun. Um, I am working on a series about the, I called it the coaching carousel. Um, I'll pick, I've done two of them, but uh, like I said, I've been kind of busy doing these game recaps every game. So I'll kind of pick, try to pick that back up as I can. Um, I still have to do the Pelicans. I still have to do the Nets. And I still have to do the 76ers. Um, I've got some interesting thoughts. I know we differed on some of those. So um, 
Once they get those done, you can kind of go over that on the show too if you want. You know, go over who we think the best fit where and something that would be interesting. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of good stuff going on over there. Um, something that we do really well, I think, that I don't see a whole lot of. If you're into you know, hockey, if you're into racing, you know, we have a lot of good coverage on that kind of stuff. Um, we cover a surprising amount of professional wrestling, um, which is, is fun for sure. I, I like talking with some of the guys about it there. I'm not as into it as some of them are, but, you know, we've got a lot of great talent guys over there. So definitely go and check us out. Excellent stuff, yeah. And I've I've read some of your work, man. And you know, I've seen the seen the site and the and the merchandise and stuff like that. You you, you promoted, you know, just as well as you do here on the show. And I'm I, I have no doubt that there is appreciative of your work as as I am. Where well, I hope so. Show. Thank you. And I yeah, definitely man. appreciate you giving me an opportunity to do this with you every week, man. I love it. I love it. Yeah, man. It's it's been a blast having a co-host. Is no like whatever worries that I had. Yeah, I mean. I knew that there were going to be like immediate benefits, but whatever worries that I had, like you just have to have the right dude, man. And I'm, mm-hmm. I think that we, that we, you know, have a good, you know, synergy and working with each other. But, um, as for myself, you know, you know, for those watching and listening, obviously I'm, I'm affiliated with the off the ball network. And I think it's cool though, that, you know, we're affiliated with different websites and stuff like that. We can still get together and, you know, have a great show and do things like right. that, man. But, um, I'm working on, like I said, that glue guy of the year award. I have I'm about eight to hear that. players. Yeah, it's it's a neat one because it's kind of like an obscure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it is, it but is, it's something that I've, I've heard, heard plenty of you know, of, you know debates about and arguments about. So, so it's something, something I like talking, I like thinking about, and talking about too. Ever since, Ever since I saw your post about it last night, I've been trying to think who could beat Marcus Smart in this thing, and I just I'm at a loss for sure. Yeah, I've, I've gone through and looked at, uh, you know, the rosters, and not every team has a candidate. Like I That's said, for sure. There's 18 players, and, um, you know, obviously there's 30 teams, so there's going to be some, some snubs, I'm sure, by some fan bases or whatever. But, you know, right, if, right. if you want to argue that uh, that Bobby Portis is, should be the glue guy to your candidate, you can just kind of go somewhere else with that. Right. And that's saying something because he's from Arkansas, as I'm, oh, he played at Arkansas, and I'm an Arkansas fan, so I can say that. But um, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that. I've actually been prodded a little bit to be like, hey, you know, I, I'm demanding a list because if you're going to claim that Marcus Smart's the guy, like, I need to see who his contemporaries are. So right. Right. It's, a, it's a fun little piece that I'm working on. But, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, check check me out there on offtheballnetwork.com. You know, I have about four or five, maybe six articles already published up there. I'm doing a lot nice. of draft coverage and, you know, I, I, I myself did kind of a coaching carousel type thing. I think I termed mm-hmm. it um, coaching matchmaker. Right, um, right. Some of those are already being shot down. Like Jay Wright had come out and already said, like, I'm not interested in Philadelphia. But yeah, part of but being a matchmaker, yeah, part of being a matchmaker, though, is saying, like, who would be best suited to be there, not, like, right. I'm, it's not, you know, coaching crystal ball. Like you always have to give yourself an out. out. You know, that's how I do it, too. You, you, you don't say this is what they're going to do. You say this is what they should do. Or, you yeah, know, yeah. And you're not really wrong. Exactly. And I still think that Jay Wright would be a great coach for Oh, I agree. And, um, yeah, I'm still not in love with that D'Antoni and Indy. I think if he goes anywhere, it should be New Orleans. And I'm kind of even thinking a little bit now about Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn would be a great D'Antoni destination. I just I think just the think Pacers have the, the, the right roster, roster for his system. system. And I think at least in their history, they like to, uh, they like to make um, – kind of big-time coaching hires to a certain extent. They, they, they don't go after a whole lot of unknowns, at least. 
past year. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, maybe that may be something that they need to look into doing, though, for, for mm -hmm. sure, though. But, yeah, so just check Austin's workout at the Game Changer Sport Network. Uh, check out the work that we're doing at Off the Ball um, Network. And, you know, we, we just appreciate all the, the support and the love that we get from you guys. You know, cracking okay. 400 downloads last month was just insane. Let's see if we can do better. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can this month. Yeah. And we'll, we'll keep pumping out the work and we'll keep promoting the mess out of it. And just ask that you guys, if you like it, let us know. You can let us know at Twitter at BTG NBA pod or at Instagram at BTG NBA pod. You can also email us. I would love to have that dialogue and I'm sure Austin, you would as well, right? With the, the fans mm -hmm. on the show, you can just email us at breaking the game podcast at gmail.com. And Austin, I haven't told you this. I'm going to kind of unveil some news here for you so you can be just as excited as a listener. I'm actually working on a, a website specifically for our podcast. Nice. So we, uh, yeah, I got to get with you kind of offline mm -hmm. um, as far as what we want to do with that. But, sure. you know, we're, um, we're working on that. I think it would be a great place where we can both direct people to kind of interface with us a little bit more on a personal right. level. And yeah, I definitely, I, I love it when people, people, you know, you know if you're listening or you're watching, you're doing this live, comment in on Facebook, you know, we'll, we'll discuss whatever you, you know, you have to talk about, you know, or if you want to add your point in, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, we had two or three people, you know, comment in during the show, and I had a lot of fun with that. So, you know, we're always open to anybody's, you know, back and forth. We always want to talk about this stuff, you know. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm not as sensitive as Austin can be, so if you don't throw criticism my way, you can do that. Yeah, uh, sure, all, that's fine. All, good, all good fun, Austin. But yeah, that that's going to do it for us here on the show. Um, we appreciate it. You know, you, the audience, uh, viewers and listeners alike, have been awesome. We've been your co-hosts, and we will catch up with you guys next time. Much love, everybody. Have a good one.